0: Hello and welcome to Dialogue Gospel Study on Alma 17-22 through 22 with our guest teacher, Blair Hodges. I'm Rebecca Deshwine. It's a member of the Dialogue Foundation Board, and I'm conducting today from my home in Provo, Utah. A special welcome to any first-timers. We invite you and everyone to check out and share with friends our previous lessons, which are available as podcasts at dialoguejournal.com where you can also find the entire 50 plus years of the journal, all for free. Uh, Videos of these lessons can also be found on our YouTube channel, uh, that's also linked on our website. Just a couple of announcements as we get started uh, today. With our webinar format, most of you are attendees and as such are able to participate, that is post comments, ask questions, engage in some semblance of discussion, through the chat function. As always, please be respectful in doing so. We do anticipate pulling in some of your comments and questions um, uh, in the lesson today. In addition to myself, uh, Dialogue Board Chair Michael Austin and fellow board member Chris Kimball may show up from time to time on your screen as we help out with technical issues and facilitate some discussion. And Christian and I even get to read some scriptures today. Uh, if you are joining us on our live Facebook stream, welcome and bear with us if we encounter any issues there. We are thrilled to have teaching today Blair D. Hodges. Blair is the Public communication Specialist for the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship at Brigham Young University. He hosts the Maxwell Institute podcast featuring scholars of religion, scripture, history, and more. And they're really great conversations if you haven't done so yet. Please check those out. He earned a master's degree in religious studies from Georgetown University, where his research focused on intellectual disabilities in Mormon thought during the 19th century. Dialogue is committed to providing a space for the expression of diverse perspectives, and for some of Mormonism's most vibrant thinking. We thank Blair for his preparation, um, the time and thought that he put into his lesson today. As in any Latter-day Saint uh, scripture uh, study lesson, the views expressed today are those of the individual teacher and do not necessarily reflect those of the Dialogue Foundation, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, BYU, or any other faith-based organization. Uh, we'll begin today with a musical selection that was recorded during the June 2018 B1 event commemorating the 40th anniversary of Declaration Two, which overturned the church's long-standing practice of withholding temple blessings and priesthood ordination from people of African descent. Gladys Knight, who needs no introduction, conducts the choir in singing. There is a pl- there is a place for us. Our opening prayer. Uh, will then be offered by Dr. Kiff Augustine-Adams, a prolific mask maker and longtime friend of Dialogue and of me. Uh, Kiff is the Ivan Midas Chair and Professor of Law and uh, a member of the Global Women's Studies Executive um, Committee at Brigham Young University, where she has taught and been making a difference in the things that matter most since 1995. Uh, She is most passionate about her work pulling people out of uh, detention centers um, and with Global Women's Studies. Uh, A distinguished scholar, she's held several visiting professorships and has at least two Fulbright fellowships to her name. Her research focuses on citizenship, gender, and race, particularly in historical context. Of her many publications, dialogue readers will be especially interested in an article she wrote on religious exemptions to Title IX that appeared in the University of Kansas Law Review in in 2016, BYU and President Oakes made quite an appearance there, uh, as well as her personal essay, To the Bishop Who Conducted My Father's Funeral Service Yesterday, which won the 2019 Eugene England Essay Contest and appeared in our Fall 2019 issue
1: our dear god and creator we are so grateful for the prophetic voice of sister gladys we ask thee to please help us to make the prophecy of her song and her hope and her faith reality in the lives of our brothers and sisters in our own lives we are grateful for the opportunities that we have to repent and to forgive. Please help us to mourn with those who mourn and to bear one another's burdens. Please help us to keep in mind and heart the humility necessary to make change in our own lives. We are grateful for the opportunities we have to do so, to consider our past mistakes and challenges and sins and to come, come unto Thee and to follow Thee. And we say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
2: Okay, do I just hop in? Is that me now? Okay. Um, Thank you for that prayer. Um, Let's see. Uh, I chose that number to open things because it's been on my mind recently with um, everything that's been going on in the news and here in the United States. And I have often thought back to that performance. My wife and I were able to attend the B1 event in person. And I think of, of all of the moments throughout that uh, throughout that program, Gladys Knight's number has stuck with me the longest. Um, I think that it was a, a fascinating example of living with aspirational hope, living with aspirational faith. And the the song sends the message that we're not there yet, um, but that we want to be on the way, and we hope that, that we'll make it to that destination. And I think that that's uh, a wonderful representation of what the life of faith is in general. And for it to have appeared in a, in a Broadway musical uh, is, is pretty, pretty awesome. And to see it um, translate into this religious context was such a powerful moment for me. And so as we're talking through the lesson today, I want to keep that attitude of aspirational hope in mind. And uh, living in, in a realistic uh, posture toward the world, and toward our place in it and, and the part that we play, but one that, that looks forward um, without forgetting where we've come from. Uh, Claire, we de- Claire yeah. we've
0: got some folks who are saying the volume is a little bit low on your end. Uh, it seems I, I can turn you up, but it does seem a little bit quiet. If okay, a- let
2: me check the settings on that really quick here. I can check my own audio settings okay turn it up all the way okay is that a little bit better okay fantastic thank you thank you to whoever (laughs) couldn't hear me uh and i hope you can hear me now i was just thanking gladys knight for that amazing musical number and and talking about aspirational hope Um, a, a hope that lives with a realistic apprehension of the past and and uses that realistic apprehension to uh, project into a better future. I think the Book of Mormon it has a, a remarkable message in it, um, in, in how frequently as a religious text it calls attention to its own incompleteness and fallibility. We have a religious text that's canonized, that is revealed, that is miraculously translated, that repeatedly shows its author's talking to future readers humbly and and almost it's supplicating the future readers not to condemn the record keepers for their imperfections but to thank god that the imperfections were made manifest and i think that if we approach the text in that way it makes it not only easier to deal with the things that make us uncomfortable in the text or that don't fit the current um our current values as well uh, but it also reminds us that we live in that way as well, and we can expect that kind of that kind of uh, analysis from our future uh, inheritors of our tradition so all right uh, before we get into the scriptures in particular, I want to say thank you to the dialogue board and to the other participants here who are joining me and also to all of the attendees I've never taught anything through a live internet stream. So I'm really nervous. And I, and of course they would schedule me right after Laurel thatcher Ulrich, who uh, taught a wonderful lesson last week. So, you know, no pressure, just go ahead and follow the Pulitzer prize-winning historian um, and, and see what you can do in Sunday school class. So I'll th- also thank you for that wonderful uh, scheduling. Okay, so we're starting off today in Alma chapter 17 and we're covering chapters 17 through 22. And this part of the Book of Mormon starts off its own kind of section in the record. And it's interesting, this is one of the few places where the record keeper has inserted a prefatory statement here. And at the outset of this section, uh, it says, This is an account of the sons of Mosiah who rejected their rights to the kingdom for the word of God and went up to the land of Nephi to preach to the Lamanites their sufferings and deliverance according to the record of Alma. So that sets the stage from where we were at uh, last week. And I would like to begin by just having someone read the first five verses of Alma 17, either Rebecca or Chris, whoever wants to grab that one. Alma chapter 17, verses one through five.
0: All right. Uh, And now it came to pass that as Alma was journeying from the land of Gideon southward away to the land of Manti, behold, to his astonishment, he met with the sons of Mosiah journeying toward the land of Zarahemla. And now these sons of Mosiah were with Alma at the time the angel first appeared unto him. Therefore, Alma did rejoice exceedingly to see his brethren. And what added more to his joy? They were still his brethren in the Lord. Yea, and they had waxed strong in the knowledge of the truth, For they were men of a sound understanding, and they had searched the scriptures diligently that they might know the word of God. But this is not all. They had given themselves to much prayer and fasting. Therefore, they had the spirit of prophecy and the spirit of revelation. And when they taught, they taught with power and authority of God. And they had been teaching the word of God for the space of 14 years among the Lamanites, having had much success in bringing many to the knowledge of the truth. Yea, by the power of their words, many were brought before the altar of God to call on his name and confess their sins before him. Now these are the circumstances which attended them in their journeys, for they had many afflictions. They did suffer much, both in body and in mind, such as hunger, thirst, and fatigue, and also much labor in the spirit.
2: Okay, so this gives us a good run up to what we're going to talk about. To to recall the background here, Alma and the sons of Mosiah had been living in opposition to the community of faith before they converted to it themselves. And uh, it's also, I think, important to remember, and, and I'm persuaded that Alma was actually probably not a rebellious teenager. He was probably an older adult. Um, who was very set in his ways and a very persuasive person. And he and the sons of Mosiah had spent uh, years in opposition to the community of faith. Uh, After they converted, they went their separate ways for 14 years. And as far as the record's concerned, they hadn't been in contact, collectively at least, during that time. And so this reunion comes after 14 years uh, of separation and in a few minutes, I'd like to open things up for comments. So to the people who are watching, I especially want to open up for comments about the end of verse five, where it says that they did suffer much, both in body and mind, and as, uh, and also much labor in the spirit. I'm really drawn to think about that labor in the spirit, the sort of fatigue, the that, that it's listed amongst these other afflictions. They had bodily afflictions, but they also had this laboring in the spirit. So um, perhaps someone can be prepared to talk about what that might mean and, and maybe a personal experience or something about what laboring in the spirit can look like. Uh, before we get to there, let's look at this idea of reunion. So Alma is rejoicing exceedingly to see his brethren. Uh, and I, the, the thing that stood out to me here is how it says that he, he rejoiced to see them, uh, but what added more to his joy was that they were still his brethren in the Lord. So I have found that um, it's, it's a common impulse for me when I run into somebody, especially from that I knew as a missionary, it's a common impulse to wonder what their relationship to the church is uh, still. And to find out, you know, and I've, I've found that that's, it's usually not a helpful question. It, it usually reduces a person um, to what their affiliation is, rather than confronting them as a whole person. And so when I read this, I think that it's significant that the text specifically points out that Alma rejoiced exceedingly to see his brethren, and also... It added to his joy to find out that they were still his brethren in the Lord. And so there's this baseline sense of care. There's a baseline sense of love and regard for these brethren of his, regardless of their relationship to the, to the important covenant that they all took together 14 years ago. There's this baseline of love and concern that transcends that. And I think about that when, when I've, I've spoken with parents whose children have left the church or, um, or things like that, where there's pain involved there. And I've found that that some parents are good at at distinguishing between um, a child's decision to leave the church and the value of that child or their love and, and connection with with that child. And the same goes for friends as well. So I'm, I'm appreciative that the Book of Mormon separates those two things and points out that Alma's love for his brethren transcended their particular affiliation with the covenant community at that time. Um, All right, so I've, and again, I've felt myself doing this, and I felt others thinking that way toward me. You can almost tell uh, when someone's trying to ask questions like, oh, so, you know, trying to figure out what your relationship to the church still is. So, I'd rather meet people in in a similar way that that Alma did here and and rejoice exceedingly, regardless of of that extra thing that can also bring joy, uh, but that isn't the basis of that joy. And I think that the covenants that they took together and the covenants that that Alma's father took uh, back in the book of Mosiah uh, play into this sense of love that transcends connection to the covenant community. So I'd like to actually skip back in time a little bit, back to Mosiah chapter 27. And uh, Chris, if you'd be willing to read from chapter 27, I'd like to read from verses 23 through 27 of Mosiah 27 and, and and tie that into what we're saying here. Oh, and you got to unmute too, by the way. Thank you. Does that work?
3: Yes, uh, And Ammon said unto him, Yea, I desire to dwell among this people for a time. Yea, and perhaps until the day I die. And it came to pass that King Lamoni was much pleased with Ammon and caused that his band should be loosed, and he would that Ammon should take one of his daughters to wife. But Ammon said unto him, are you, Sorry,
2: but, sorry to interrupt. Are you in Mosiah are, 27? I'm in Alma 27. Oh, okay. yeah. Keep it back Um, spoiler guys that's a total spoiler I apologize to whoever's teaching the Alma 27 lesson oh Um, that's going
3: to be a good lesson but uh, (laughs) all right I'm back at Mosiah 27 okay starting at 23
2: yes verse 23 through 27 no problem
3: yeah you got me worried though well there is some time reversal happening in Alma as well so oh it's
2: all over the place this is a really complicated text where we have backward and forward uh, movement in time but but go on
3: Okay, um, so this is Alma's confession. And it came to pass that they had fasted and prayed for the space of two days and two nights. The limbs of Amla received their strength, and he stood up and began to speak unto them, bidding them to be of good comfort. For, said he, I have repented of my sins and have been redeemed of the Lord. Behold, I am born of the Spirit. And the Lord said unto me, Marvel not that all mankind, yea, men and women, all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people, Must be born again, yea, born of God, changed from their carnal and fallen state to a state of righteousness, being redeemed of God, becoming his sons and daughters. And thus they become new creatures, and unless they do this, they can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. Go on.
2: Uh, That was... Yeah, actually, that, that's good. Let's stop at 26. Okay. So, okay, so this is back when Alma was rescued by this angelic visitor when he testified about his conversion. And you'll notice that he frames his redemption as part of becoming God's sons and daughters. This isn't an individual salvation narrative of, of a singular person who by themselves is born of the Spirit and exists independently and singularly before God. Um, rather, this is a story of joining a covenant community that's, that is part of the family of God, being born of God. It's something that changes people from a fallen state into a state of righteousness, not a state of perfection, but a state of righteousness. And I, I like to take that term and break it down, righteousness, not something that their behavior is always uh, correct or anything like that, but righteousness is a state is a posture toward the world. That state of righteousness is right is right looking. Uh, it's connected to the to the idea of justice. So righteousness, being in a state of righteousness, is being in a state of right relation to others, and recognizing that all people, the text says all mankind, have the opportunity to enter into that. And so his obligation is 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 broadened out. He's not given an award here and rewarded, and and he's not at the finish line. He's invited into a, a relationship. Uh, a new way of seeing his relationship to the world, to all people, as the text says, to all mankind, all nations, kindreds, tongue, and people. So his obligations increase, they don't decrease here, through the mercy and grace of Christ. The mercy and grace of Christ turn his eyes outward to other people. So he's part of becoming uh, God's sons and daughters, And, and you'll notice when he reunites with the sons of Mosiah, this is what he means when he's talking about them as being his brethren. They're his siblings in that sense they've all uh, taken on that new obligation and that new relationship to the world and to each other. So uh, this we see throughout the Book of Mormon, where conversion to Christ is never a singular personal redemption. It's not a one-off event for any individual, but salvation is communal here. It includes gathering into the family of God and, and the drive becomes to bring more people into that. I'm thinking of, for example, the prayer of Enos, which is one of the most remarkable chapters in the Book of Mormon where he's praying for his enemies and he's saying things about his enemies and, and or rather he starts out, sorry, he starts out praying for himself. He's worried about his own self and, and his, the state of his soul. And he receives this this manifestation from God that he's forgiven and that things are okay. And he immediately then turns to think about other people. The conversion turns him outward, not further inward. And, and this is what we see throughout the Book of Mormon that the sense that conversion and salvation is communal. Um, all right. Now, we're, we're, I want to tie this into the baptismal covenant as well from Mosiah 18. So this is where they talk about taking on the name of Christ. And if we think about what that means to take on someone's name, again, this is joining in a community. This is joining in a family. It's becoming part of a family. Now names can serve to distinguish us from other people. They can serve to separate. Um, I belong to this family, you belong to this family. Um, So they can serve as distinguishing markers, but names can also uh, highlight in in productive ways difference and diversity, or they can be organized into hierarchy, so names can be a way of recognizing difference in diversity and diversity and, and a collective know, knowing singular units within a collective or it can be used to set up a hierarchy like this family is the best, then this family, then this family. So families can be used to encourage us to think about connection to other people or to divide us from other people. So how does taking on Christ's name operate? It can operate in either of those ways. When we join a covenant community and take on Christ's name, that can be used to set us apart from other people in a, in a sense of superiority, in a sense of uh, feeling better than others and even if we our hearts want them to gather people into that we're still coming from a place above them we're 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 coming f- uh, we're condescending to them to to try to rescue them rather than seeing them um, on the same ground as ourselves so taking on us christ's name can be can be condescending and separating in that way or it can be uh, a reminder of our connection and our obligation to other people to become servants, um, to become the least of these and, and to lift others up. So with that in mind, then Rebecca, if you could read Mosiah 18 uh, verses eight through 11, please.
0: And it came to pass that King Lamoni inquired of his servant. Sorry, this is
2: Mosiah chapter 18 as oh, well. Oh, yeah. and, and just to remind people, this is where Alma is uh, organizing the Church of Christ in the wilderness here. So they've, they've fled, and they're out in the wilderness. They're, they're this, the waters of Mormon setting up this first covenant community here. Um, so, yeah, uh, okay. verses 8 through 11 in Mosiah 18.
0: Okay. Uh, and it came to pass that he said unto them, Behold, here are the waters of Mormon, for thus were they called. And now, as ye are desirous to come into the fold of God and to be called his people, and are willing to bear one another's burdens, that they may be light. Yea, and are willing to mourn with those that mourn, yea, and comfort those that stand in need of comfort, and to stand as witnesses of God at all times, and in all things, and in all places, that ye may be in, even unto death, that ye may be redeemed of God, and be numbered with those of the first resurrection, that ye may have eternal life. Now I say unto you, if this is the desire of your hearts, what have you against being baptized in the name of the Lord, as a witness before him, that ye have entered into a covenant with him? that you will serve him and keep his commandments that he may pour out his spirit more abundantly upon you. And now when the people had heard these words, they clapped their hands for joy and exclaimed, this is the desire of our hearts.
2: Okay. And so verse nine, especially is, is a verse that, that I think about time and again, it it might be the verse that I think about most from the book of Mormon, because it's laying out some obligations. Well, it, it actually kind of, I don't like how Orson Pratt separated verse eight and nine. I think those needed to be together. Um, So let's look at that again if you're desirous to come into the fold, it's not, are you desirous to be saved yourself? It's, are you desirous to come into this community and be called a people together? And what that means, he specifies, willing to bear one another's burdens that they may be light, willing to mourn with those that mourn, comfort those that stand in need of comfort, stand as witness, and I tie this in, to stand as a witness of God at all times and all things and all places, I don't think that's separate from what he just said. I think he's summing up, what all of those things mean. To stand as a witness of God is to be willing to bear one another's burdens. To stand as a witness of God is to be willing to mourn with those that mourn. To stand as a witness of God is to comfort those that stand in need of comfort. That is what it is, to stand as a witness of God. And when do we do that? We do that at all times, in all things, in all places that you may be in. And that's that's going to matter to these sons of Mosiah and to, to Ammon as well, the places that they may be. And they're going into a place where they feel they're, they're entering the land of their enemies. Um, and and they're going to go there to stand as witnesses of God, not to go there and and preach down to the people about the things that they, you know, to, to bear down on them. In fact, we see what happened when they kind of took that approach. And I, and, and Laurel movingly talked about this last week where Alma brings up fire and brimstone and, and tells the people, Hey, you know, you're going to be thrown into this lake of fire and brimstone. If you don't, you know, he's kind of using fear as a tactic. And, and, and the leader there horrifyingly says, Oh, you want to talk about fire and brimstone? Let's, let's, let's go ahead and get that started today. And it's one of the most unsettling passages in the book of Mormon, where we see um, women and children and others being thrown in, into the flames. And, and Alma thinks, Hey, we, we, let 's stand back and not do anything here. This, this is sort of a, a testament against them. Um, Kylie Turley, who is uh, teaches English at Brigham Young University, has unpacked that section and, and she suggests that that Alma actually in doing that um, incurred his own sort of trauma that, that it 's possible that Alma himself came to regret the part that he played in that suffering and what she points to is the fact that the lake of fire and brimstone had been invoked several times in the book of Mormon text up to that point, but it's never evoked again anywhere else in the book of Mormon after that happened. And Alma himself, we don't, we don't hear from him for several years after that event, the text uh, moves forward and, and he's not talking. Um, and so she talks about uh, she invites us to think about why that lake of fire and brimstone disappears. That wasn't an instance of Alma mourning with people or comforting people or trying to bear any burdens. In fact, what we see Ammon do in today's lesson is try to bear burdens by becoming a servant, by, by joining the community. And we'll talk about that in a minute, but there's another, one more thing I want to talk about here in Mosiah 18. If we flip this on its head, I think it really highlights highlights the risk. I'm going to preach a little sermon to myself right now. That's what I'm going to do. Um, The text does not say this. If you're willing to doubt one another's burdens, that they're maybe not that heavy. If you're willing to question those that mourn. If you're willing to talk at those who stand in need of comfort. That's not what the text is asking us to do. But that's what I'm sometimes inclined to do is to rush in and instead of mourning with someone who's mourning to fix someone who's mourning or to deny that someone who's mourning has a right to mourn about what they're mourning about. The text is explicit. It does not say to question those that mourn. It doesn't say to doubt those who stand in need of comfort. It says to join them where they're at and take them seriously and 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 that's and we and we see that play out in different ways. Again, I would suggest that the way that Ammon enters his community is different, and in some ways, I, I would say even some ways even better than what Alma had done in going in and preaching fire and brimstone. Ammon goes in and just gets to work and starts to serve people. All right. Okay. Um, before we move on, I want to read an excerpt here. And after I prepared the lesson, I went and watched Christine Hagelin's lesson and found that she she actually quoted this exact same thing. And so I thought about taking it out, but, um, but I think it bears repeating because it's sort of an unusual thing to hear in general conference. This is from an address that Elder Robert C. Gay delivered in 2018. Uh, Elder Gay is talking about The compassion that God has, uh, what it means to take upon ourselves the name of Christ, as, as we see in this covenant that what it means to take upon ourselves the name of Christ. And Elder Gay quoted Joseph Smith saying, while one portion of the human race is judging and condemning the other portion without mercy, the great parent of the universe looks upon the whole of the human family with a parental care and paternal regard. His love is unfathomable. So, this is similar to what, uh, to what Alma felt when he reunited with the sons of Mosiah, where he loved them regardless. His joy was added to when he found that they were still his brethren in the covenant, but the love that he had for them transcended and preceded that, that particular concern. All right, so Elder Gay continues with a story here. He says, A few years ago, my older sister passed away. She had a challenging life. She struggled with the gospel and was never really active. Her husband abandoned their marriage and left her with four young children to raise. On the evening of her passing in a room with her children present, I gave her a blessing to peacefully return home. At that moment I realized that I had too often defined my sister's life in terms of her trials and inactivity in the church. As I placed my hands on her head that evening, I received a severe rebuke from the spirit. I was made acutely aware of my sister's goodness And I was allowed to see her as God saw her, not as someone who struggled with the gospel in life, but as someone who had to deal with difficult issues that I did not have. I saw her as a magnificent mother who, despite great obstacles, had raised four beautiful, amazing children. And I imagine he would say if some of them weren't so beautiful or amazing that that he would love them as well. Uh, I saw my sister as the friend to our mother, who took time to watch over and be a companion to her after a father passed away. And during that final evening with my sister, I believe God was asking me, can't you see that everyone around you is a sacred being? And then he quotes Brigham Young. Brigham Young is a complicated figure. Uh, So whenever I hear people employing Brigham Young's fire and brimstone, or using Brigham, or, you know, reiterating some of the more harsh things that Brigham Young taught, Uh, I invite them to take a look at some of the other things Brigham Young taught. And Elder Gay quotes Brigham Young here. And Brigham Young said, I wish to urge upon the saints to understand women and men as they are, not to understand them as you are. How often is it said, such a person's done wrong and and he cannot be a saint. We hear some swear and lie or break the Sabbath. Do not judge such persons, for you do not know the design of the Lord concerning them. Rather, bear with them. So that's Brigham Young. And then Elder Gay continues. Can any one of you imagine our Savior letting you and your burdens go unnoticed by him? The Savior looked upon the Samaritan, the tax collector, the leper, the sinner, with the same eyes. All were children of his father and all were redeemable. Can you imagine him turning away from someone with doubts about their place in God's kingdom or turning away from anyone afflicted in any manner? I cannot. In the eyes of Christ, each soul is of infinite worth. No one is preordained to fail. Eternal life is possible for all. For, from the Spirit's rebuke at my sister's bedside, I learned a great lesson. That as we see as he sees, ours will be a double victory. Redemption of those we touch and redemption of ourselves. Now, when he puts that, oh yeah, close quote. Um, when he puts this idea of double redemption... Uh, I would say that is redemption. I would say that is the singular redemption, that redemption is not separated from our relationships with other people, that 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 it's intimately connected to other people and to the relationship that we have. And I see the echoes of the baptismal covenant in Elder Gay's words here. He talked about how Christ is willing to bear burdens, something that we've covenanted to do. All right. So earlier I talked about a phrase that we're going to return to now. And Chris, maybe you've got a few comments from people, or maybe there's there's a few people who want to hop on and talk. I, I would, either of those things would be good. By the way, I'm not used to lecturing. I don't do this. But we're going to talk about labor. I don't, I don't think here. we have a way for. Right.
3: I don't think we have a way for all of the participants to jump on and talk. That's let's by, have
2: everyone do it at uh, once.
3: Yes. N- <laughs> I think that's by necessary design. But we do have numerous comments that I think are wonderful.
2: Please do, um, yeah. So this is, again, in terms of this idea of laboring in the Spirit. I, I This stuck with me as I was reading, preparing for this lesson, that it said, you know, they had hunger and fatigue and thirst and all these bodily things and also much labor in the Spirit. And originally, you know, I would think that meant that they were doing work according to how the Spirit prompted them to do it. But I don't think that's, that. that's not the only way to read that. Labor in the Spirit is a kind of burden and work in and of itself. So I'm interested to hear what people have to say about that.
3: Um, I'll, I'll I'll let Margaret Young be the I'll, I'll acknowledge her by name since she can't speak up here except by chat. I have made great efforts to find sacred spaces to share with my children, who no longer participate in Mormonism. Hmm. Sorry, catches me too. Um, in what places can our mutual love and creative Creativity thrive. Nature has held a spot many times, but so has the dining room. I also want to do away with the idea that a person can be a weak link in the family line. We weaken one another if we fail to love fully. All are responsible for all.
2: Did I see one from like an anthropology professor or something like that?
0: um who's talking about um compassion fatigue and sometimes what happens <laughs> can happen to us one of the things i like from from a number of the comments is that folks are thinking about this labor and this spirit in a lot of different ways so margaret um part of what she's thinking about is um in what spaces do we see this labor happening um and how does that kind of shift how we think about what it means to labor in the spirit? And we've got others who are thinking about um, particular issues or ways that they've had to labor in the spirit. So the November policy has come up. I would also mention um, the church's racial restrictions and the, and the ongoing um, legacy of those restrictions is something that... Um, that comes to mind when we think about um, laboring in the spirit. There was another comment about how um, how laboring the spirit might imply that that things are hidden um, that much of the time we prefer to labor um, in other ways in kind of easy, easier, and maybe sometimes more visible ways, but but labor of the spirit can often be that hidden, really difficult, um, difficult work. Um, someone here is uh, kind of adding to that and saying that that looking inward and ever asking what lack I yet, um, in reference to a really great conference talk several years ago. Um, so, Blair, if you want to pull in any of those thoughts and we'll talk about them.
3: Mm-hmm. Let me expand a bit on the, on the uh, compassion fatigue. I think that's another right. to include. Um, I'm an anthropologist in grad school researching refugee and immigrant access and barriers issues. And I did several years of social service work and resettlement before grad school. Many people I work with as clients and students have struggled with burnout. Um, I have that same comment from... Uh, offline from um, local leaders in wards where there are such uh, uh, a lot of needs uh, uh, that, the, um, uh, that the that the that it looks endless. It looks like a like a black hole of of need and requirements for um, supporting and helping local members. Another conversation that I'm bringing in has to do with um, maybe what you've already referred to, Blair, work by missionaries, by bishops, by quorum leaders who are uh, constantly wishing that God would tell them what to do, that the Spirit would witness, that there would be a now do this, now do that. And um, finding that they continually, and I think this is true for all of us, I guess I'm adding my own words, find that we need to be um, making our own decisions, that, that more often than not, we are figuring it out. And that feels exhausting. It would be nice if the Spirit just gave me the next direction
2: hmm I think talking about compassion fatigue is critical. Uh, this is the flip side of everything that I've been saying so far about what we're called to do in a covenant community, because it can become completely overwhelming, especially uh, especially now today. I feel like we're more connected than ever to, to really quick access to information about suffering that's happening all over the world. Not only can we read an account of something that's happening, but we can see a cell phone video pop up in a Twitter feed when we're like looking for some goofs online and all of a sudden we see a video of some uh, of a, someone being shot or we see uh, crowds in, in, in anger uh, demanding change. Um, and then all, then we're reading about, you know, COVID-19 and, and then we're, we're reading about uh, some, some sort of problem in the local community. It can be really easy to become completely absorbed in these kind of uh, in, 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 the, in the darker side, the things that need attention. And laboring in the spirit, to me, part of what laboring in the spirit demands is learning how to negotiate where we spend our energy and how we spend our energy in the most effective ways that we possibly can without overwhelming ourselves. So I always tie this back into some things that Deidre Green taught me. Deidre Green is a researcher at the Maxwell Institute where I work, and she's written a lot on the sin of selflessness, this idea that we can be actually become idolatrous in putting ourselves uh, in, in believing that we are supposed to be Christ's rather than that we're supposed to live as Christ lived in certain ways. So she gave the example of a woman who was abused by her, uh, by her husband and went to her spiritual advisor who said, well, you know, if you stick with him, you can help him change. And you can be sacrificial. You, this can be like Christ for you to do this. And Dietrich talks about how that's that can be a perversion of what the gospel expects us to do. She ties it into the two great commandments. The two great commandments are to love God and love others as ourselves. And it's not loving to ourselves to put ourselves in a position of abuse. And we're not called on, we're not called on to change other people like that. She's actually not, it's not her calling to make her husband repent, or to convince him to change, or anything like that—not that—not it, that it's wrong to to try to work with people, but that it's not her obligation to do that. And so, when we think about confa- compassion fatigue, I think labor in the spirit requires us to monitor the state of our of our spirit, the state of our, you know, uh, of our uh, just how. Uh, how much energy we have to devote to all this stuff. I also saw someone, I think Elizabeth Pinbrough mentioned that some of the spiritual labor can even happen subconsciously. I I think that like in dreams or or other, other places in dreams and underneath the mental and emotional work we do. I found that to be the case. Um, I I've during this isolation time of COVID-19, I've found myself working through issues from my past or current issues. Um, And sometimes um, sometimes that happens below the radar. And I, I I come to some sort of realization or resolve without consciously spending time trying to fix it. In fact, sometimes if I get too sucked into that kind of work, I I get stuck and I can't get out of it. So I think everybody is going to have to adjust how their labor in the spirit looks like in a way that keeps them healthy, in a way that keeps them able to continue to do that. Because as Deidre Green said, you can't give of yourself if there's nothing left to give you've got to fill that reservoir yourself in order to be able to provide water for other people. Sometimes <laughs> I've talked about the oxygen mask situation with my with my kids and, and my wife where it's like, sometimes we're too, especially my wife is too quick to, she won't like, she needs food, she's hungry, but she wants to take care of the stuff with this kids first. And, and I'm like, okay, look, they're not going to starve just help yourself, help yourself, put your oxygen mask on, get in a good spot, and then we can move on to the next thing. Um, So in order to do this spiritual labor, we have to be attuned to how, you know, to what our reservoir of strength is, I think. Um, Let me see if there was any other comments here that I liked. Uh, Matt Kern is talking about Richard Rohr, talking about great love and suffering. Here's a quote from uh, Richard Rohr. I've often said that great love and great suffering, both healing and woundedness are the universal, always available paths of transformation because they're the only things strong enough to take away the ego's protections and pretensions. Great love and great suffering bring us back to God. And I believe this is how Jesus himself walked humanity back to God. It's not just a path of resurrection rewards, but a path now that also includes death and woundedness. So labor in the spirit Includes taking time in the morning, in the in the suffering, in the in the people who need comfort. It's not rushing people through those things. It's laboring in the spirit, uh, in the middle of those things. Uh, one other comment here: I see Janice Spengler says that the path of descent is the path of transformation. It feels more overwhelming when we expect it not to be, as if righteousness could save us from the suffering. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, uh, I think that the state of mind that we enter into spiritual labor with can make a difference in how much spiritual labor we can perform. Um, and, uh, and, and to try not to be self-indulgent about it either. Um, all right, let's see. I think, I think that's good for that. I, I want to talk about something that happens here. Um, the sons of Mosiah had split up and, and Ammon had gone down to the land of Ishmael. And so we're, uh, We're still in Alma chapter 17 here. He's bound and he's taken before the king. And based on all the rhetoric that we've heard from Book of Mormon record keepers about how terrible the Lamanites are, we might expect them to just put him to death or something. But it's um, Mormon says that the pleasure of the king was to slay him or keep him in captivity or cast him into prison. I don't know what the difference there would be. Or cast him out of the land according to the king's will and pleasure. And that's not what we get when when he gets in front of the king here. Um, It just says... And the king inquired of Alma or of Ammon, if it was his desire to dwell in the land among the Lamanites or among his people. So he's just like, Hey, uh, are you, do you just, did you just want to live here or something? Like what's going on? And Ammon answers him and says a very moving response here. He says, I desire to dwell among this people for a time. yea, And perhaps until the day I die. So Ammon's amongst the people that he feels are hostile, that he feels, um, you know, that have have power over him at this point, uh, to cast him into prison or to mistreat him. And he's saying that he desires to dwell among them. And I think there's some interesting political things going on here in the text. Uh, as we see the king say, oh, that's great. You can have one of my daughters for your wife. Okay, so we're running into some of the difficult, ethical, uh, cultural differences that, that, uh, that the Book of Mormon offers to us. We can see this as, as probably a way of forging some sort of strategic political alliance between peoples. Um, Ammon doesn't take the king up on that. He says, I'd, I'd rather be your servant than your son-in-law. And then we're going to get to this really gruesome story about chopping off arms, which I actually don't want to spend a lot of time on. <laughs> so I'm going to burn some time talking about this idea of dwelling among this people for a time. And I've been thinking about this a lot lately, about what it means to dwell among people for a time, especially during this COVID-19 situation where a lot of our social interactions are confined to the internet, kind of like what we're doing right now. Um, For me, I have my family with me, and that's great, but I've also missed some of the social outlets, especially my friends and colleagues and people that I see at the Maxwell Institute that we haven't been able to get together. So we've got this sense of isolation. Uh, from COVID. And then, of course, we have the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor that have sparked national unrest. And so we're talking about issues like racism, issues of public health. We're coming up on a presidential election. And a lot of these conversations are playing out on the internet. So I want to spend a minute here talking about what it might mean to dwell together on the internet, to dwell for a time on the internet. And I'm going to draw on some interesting research from Uh, from a professor of psychology named John Suler. And he's talked about something called the online disinhibition effect. The disinhibition effect. It's describing the fact that when we're online, some of the social restrictions that we would have in person, in present, like face-to-face interactions can be diminished. We don't interact necessarily the same way as we would in person with people. And he says this can be benign, this benign disinhibition can, can lower your inhibitions so that you're maybe more confessional or open with somebody. Someone online might self-disclose more things than they would feel comfortable talking about in real life. Uh, some people might go out of their way to show some kindness or s- send some assistance that they might not do in person. So that's sort of a, a positive side of disinhibition, disinhibition, but there's also a toxic kind of this. And we see this online with, with rude language and threats and, and violence and things that a person might not do in real life. So I wanna talk about some of the reasons why that happens as a way for us to think about how our online interactions are going. Because I've noticed recently that uh, I've been wanting to jump on, in on people's Facebook walls and like, go after somebody about, <laughs> about uh, you know, racial injustice or something and, and really come in with, with figurative guns ablazing. And this internet disinhibition effect definitely plays into that. Uh, so, one of the things that the that the professor talks about is the dissociative anonymity and when you 're on the internet, you can be anonymous and I see this on Twitter more often than on Facebook, but you can comment on forums I see this in in comment sections to newspapers, which i you know it 's cliche, but like don 't read the comments i 've found that to be. A very good rule of thumb. When people feel anonymous, they feel protected. They don't have to own their own behavior. They can compartmentalize what they're doing. It's an online identity, it's, it's not real life. They can actually not even integrate it. I, and I, I've seen this happen in myself as well. Anonymity helps people feel less vulnerable about self disclosing or about engaging in antisocial behavior, about being more aggressive. So the anonymity effect is a big deal. Um, it's also async. Asynchronous, uh, the asynchronicity. You can you can drop a bomb on someone's Facebook wall and then just walk away. You don't have to dwell with it. You don't have to sit with it. In fact, you don't even have to know that person. You don't. There's no there's no real mutual regard happening in that kind of an of an exchange. You're not dwelling with anybody when you're hopping on social media and, and just dropping bombs. That doesn't mean that I don't think we need to use our voices in online spaces and, and talk, uh, you know, respond to, to ideas that we find to be harmful. I, I think that that's important. But I also think that it's important that we're, if we're going to do that, that we're willing to, to dwell, we're willing to dwell more with those people. Um, and, and what that means is taking them seriously as a, and, and think of them as a real person and, and think about the ways that our persuasion can either be signaling our own virtue, like coming in and saying it like it is, or if we're really trying to reach that person where they're at. And we see this throughout this text where these, these missionaries go in and talk to the king and they're speaking his language. They're, you know, he's like, I don't know about God. And they're like, well, what about the great spirit? Oh, yeah, okay. So they're sort of building on common beliefs. I think our internet interactions um, can, can really draw a lot on the tactics that we're seeing happening in these face-to-face conversations. Um there's one other thing I want to mention this idea that it's just a game uh, dissociative imagination I've seen this especially on Twitter with people who use anonymous accounts that people sometimes see internet spaces as a place to just sort of try out ideas and behaviors that they wouldn't try out in, in real life and and it, it it can encourage them to be a lot more aggressive and rude and 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 kind of bring out the worst in people so as we're the thing the thing that I want to invite us all to do is to learn how to dwell among people for a time when we're having these difficult conversations. When I'm making a Facebook comment, how would things be different if I was engaging with them in person? Am I really willing to truly dwell with someone in an online space? So that's something to think about. All right. In chapter 18, something strange happens. Uh, Ammon cuts off a bunch of arms. (laughs) Um, But I do want to point out what I think is one of the, one of the best laugh lines in the book of Mormon. I don't know if it was intended to be funny or not. um, But I love this part in verse eight of chapter 18, (laughs) where the servants come in and say, Hey, this new guy just, he just chopped off all these arms. Here you go. Like there's something going on here. And uh, they tell him everything. And the King, King Lamoni says, where, where is this man that has this great power? And they said unto him, behold, he's feeding thy horses. Uh, I love that. That is a great, <laughs> that's a great moment. Uh, and the king's like, oh, oh, oh dear. Well, get him in here. Right. Um, so he comes in and the king's very open to what he has to say. And the openness is a really good thing because Ammon's, or Ammon's going to walk him through the Nephite version of their people's history from the creation of even Adam down through the Lehite departure from Jerusalem, including the rebellions of Laman and Lemuel and the sons of Ishmael. And remember he's in the land of Ishmael right now with their descendants. And so he, he's, he's essentially tearing down some figurative statues, perhaps, that have been built. If we want to believe the Nephite story about who the Lamanites are, then they've erected some false traditions of their fathers, and he's going in there and talking to them about that. He, he's not sparing them that. He's talking about Laman and Lemuel and the sons of Ishmael. In effect, he's setting up a story of fall and redemption, and he's going to take them to this idea of the, the, the coming of Christ, And this is where the king falls down like he's dead. And this is where we get in chapter 19, this classic exchange between the queen and Ammon. Ammon goes into the queen. This is another, I think these are two of my favorite moments, humor-wise, in the Book of Mormon, where the poor queen says, some say that he's not dead, but others say that the king's dead, and that he stinketh, and that he ought to be placed in a sepulcher. But as for myself, to me he doth not stink. Um, and I, I think what a, what a lovely testament of a wife for her for her sleeping husband, that this man doesn't uh, doesn't stink. And then we're going to meet this singular person in the text, Abish, a Lamanite woman. Not a Lamanite woman, a Lamanite woman. And I recently interviewed Kylie Turley about her book that she wrote on the Book of Alma. It's, and, and yeah, this is kind of a plug, but if it wasn't great material, I, I wouldn't bring it up here. So it's more than just a plug. Uh, I'm talking, I'm going to have an excerpt of that interview with her. I want Kylie Turley to talk about Abish. And so, uh, Mike, you've got that clip here. And this is where Kylie's talking about, oh, that's a spoiler. Go to the video, not the slide. Spoilers. Everybody close your eyes. Okay, so uh, we're at the video.
4: We have Abish who, for all intents and purposes, has no power. She shouldn't have any power in the society. She's a servant. She's a servant. And we grant you a servant in the royal household. Maybe there's a tiny bit of power there, but she's a woman in a society that seems to clearly revolve around men. And here Abish has a name.
2: She's also called Lamanitish.
4: Lamanitish. We don't know what that means, but what it clearly means is... She's not one or the other. She's not Lamanite. She's not Nephite.
2: She's marginal. Even She's more. marginal. Yeah.
4: Always a marginal, not powerful person.
2: And what would a social justice lens pull out of that? When you're kind of looking closely at her status in society and seeing...
4: Then this is stunning. This is the least powerful person in the society. She's not even in the society. She's on the fringes. She's a lamanite woman, servant, she should not be able to accomplish anything at all, and yet she does. She changes things in a powerful way. She changes the society. People listen to her. It's a stunning moment.
2: You suggest that she's even a Christ figure.
4: She pulls people together, and she raises the queen. So we have this moment where King Lamoni has collapsed revives and then speaks briefly to his wife which is a lovely moment in scripture she is the first person he turns to reaches out for her before he's even up off his bed he's reaching out towards his wife and then they both collapse and then the servants collapse Ammon collapses everyone is down on the ground and she runs runs to to gather people thinking that if they behold this scene they're they're going to be converted but the opposite happens. They start fighting, bickering. One man even tries to kill Ammon and she realizes this is getting out of control. This is going to turn into a mob. I need to do something. She's sorrowful and to tears about the situation that she unintentionally created with the best of intentions and reaches out and takes the queen by the hand and the way this is described just stands out to me. She touches the queen's hand and the woman instantly revives the queen rises not just from falling to the earth it makes it sound like she's spiritually reborn from the fall not a fall she raises someone from spiritual death Uh, abish does i think she's very much of a christ figure in that context
2: okay all right, so, so we have it's an It's repeating now. All right, there we go. Um, okay. So yeah. Uh, thanks to the people who put the link in there the, uh, to the podcast interview. Um, Kylie Turley's book, I'm, uh, bef- the last thing we're going to do here is I'm going to read you an excerpt from that book. It's not going to be out for another couple of months. Um, you can learn about the whole series at the Maxwell Institute's website, mi.byu.edu slash brief. That's where you can learn about the series. They're short. Uh, little introductions to each book in the Book of Mormon. They they feel good in the hand. Each is written by a different author. You the number call the number displayed below here. No, um, but I want to read this excerpt because Kylie Kylie's book ends with this great meditation on Abish. And Mike, if you could put up that first slide real quick. Uh, the first slide um, we used the woodcuts. To, for, these, for the cover of these books, we used the woodcuts that Brian Kershysnick had made for the Maxwell Institute study edition of the Book of Mormon. And one of the downsides to those was there were only a few women depicted in those. And we especially did not want to miss the opportunity to get Abish. And so Brian Kershysnick started to do some preliminary sketches here to figure out what we wanted. And you'll see on the right is the first one that he did. Uh, Abish sort of from the side, a profile of her... Um, crying over the queen there. And then on the left, you'll see a kind of a different angle of her. Okay, go ahead and go to the next one. So this is the one that he ended up choosing. Um, But he wondered about that tear. He didn't want, he wanted, sometimes that can connote some sort of weakness. And I don't think it always does connote weakness. I think there's strength in crying. But It seemed to draw too much attention to it, Brian said. And so go ahead and go to the final woodcut version if you go to the next slide. So this is the one that he ended up choosing. Um, So we see Abish there uh, leaning over the queen um, about to to raise her up. Okay, and then go on to the next slide. That's how it looks on the cover of the book. So instead of using the woodcut for the Book of Alma uh, from the study edition, we had Brian Uh, Brian was willing to cut a new version of that. Okay, I want to read this excerpt to conclude here. This is what Kylie Nilsson Turley uh, talks about when it comes to Abish. Abish's actions courageously challenge religious practices and, and biblical law, and most likely they challenge gender, age, cultural, and socioeconomic expectations. This is a servant sort of taking control of the room here. If we read it symbolically, she's also a Christ figure. As Christ is both divine and human, unable to be categorized as one or the other, Abish is also a un- in a unique position as a Lamaniteish person. She bridges the cultural and religious space between the Nephite church and the Lamanites when Ammon brings the fall to this household and then falls himself. Abish bridges socioeconomic space between the royalty and the people when she calls the people to come to the royal court And she bridges life and death when she gives life to the queen and the queen gives life to the king. In the heart of a book troubled by war and regular hand-to-hand combat, Abish shares life and the queen receives life hand to hand. And this symbolism challenges readers. What do their hands do? Destroy or bring life? Bridge divides or increase gaps? help others arise, or let them remain fallen. This woman who has no power and no status in this world can symbolically raise the dead, and she can do so with such fullness that a mere touch changes people into life-givers themselves. Like Christ, Abish begins with nothing. She descends below everyone else in this story, yet her quiet conversion allows her to lift people when they fall to the earth. And she does so powerfully and with abundance. So to conclude here, um, I just, I want to echo what she says there in in that Abish's marginal status is precisely where her strength in the situation comes from. Uh, And and I, I feel like we're invited to do the same. I think of Sister Gladys Knight's amazing musical number that we began with. Gladys Knight is without question, part of a minority of church members. And she brought her gifts and her talents to deliver a powerful message of, of, of not saying that everything's good now. This is not what that song is talking about. That song is talking about the possibilities that she sees within our faith to get to Zion, to get to that place. And she comes from a marginal place to deliver a central message. And it's a central message that I hope we can all help spread and help bring to past, bring to fulfillment. And, uh, I don't know if people, I, I I don't know if people usually close in the name of Jesus Christ, but, uh, I will say that in his name. Amen. Um, Thank you everybody for this opportunity uh, to talk to you all today. I really appreciated this and I did it with much fear and trembling.
0: Uh, Thank you so much, Blair and everyone. Um, We have uh, a great example of dwelling together, I think. Um, Really rich discussion on chat um, and we were able to bring in some of that um, during the lesson today I love kind of leaving uh, you leaving us with this example of Abish and with Gladys um, Knight, um, and thinking about um, laboring in the spirit and what that looks like and can look like, um, and kind of the possibilities for what our hands can do as we um, take on the work of redemption that's um, It's not just individual, but about our community um, and the world. So thank you so much. Uh, Join us next week for a lesson. Um, We'll continue in Alma uh, by Dr. Michaelin Steele. Dialogue Foundation board member Morris Thurston, who is joining us from his lovely home in Villa Park, California, will offer our closing prayer.
5: Our Heavenly Father, we come before Thee this day, and we're very thankful for the lesson we've heard. We're thankful for Brother Blair Hodges and the work and effort he's put into it. We're thankful for dialogue, which has provided the means to bring it to us. We're grateful for the scriptures that help us to gain insights for our time We ask thee to help us not to judge others, to see all fellow humans as our brothers and sisters. And especially at this time of COVID-19, bless those who are afflicted, bless their caregivers, and bless our leaders who make policies so they'll do it wisely. Bless those who suffer from racism. Help us to do our part to eliminate it in the church, in our nation, in the world at large. And we ask for these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.